0: You're listening to episode 380 of the GNU World Order. My name's Klaatu and in this episode we're going to do what we've been doing for the past couple of episodes and that is go through every single software package installed by default on Slackware Linux. Now if you're not running Slackware Linux that's okay. You probably have access to the software that I'm talking about because it's open source so you can probably just install it on whatever distribution of Linux you are running from your software repository or if you're running BSD or even if you're running windows or mac because it's open source and it's probably available for your platform the applications that we're talking about today are uh well they're 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 in the ap package set meaning that they're applications without a graphical interface implied. Uh, I don't think I've really come across any in this package set that have a graphical interface. I could be just blanking on one or two. I mean, like CUPS kind of has a graphical interface, but it's through a web browser. But in this episode, we're going to talk about QPDF, I'm going to talk about Radeon Tool for like 10 seconds, because I know nothing about it, and then RPM, which is a really fun one. And maybe we'll get to something else, I don't know, but definitely those three. So let's get started. QPDF, Sounds if you if you're if you're familiar with Linux application naming schemes, it sounds deceptive. Qpdf to me sounds like it is a PDF viewer based on the cute that's Qt toolset, and that would be a perfectly acceptable application for it to be. But it is not. It's not at all that. Qpdf. I don't actually know what it stands for. Let's let's check it out and see if the man page tells us. Man qpdf. No, it doesn't tell me. So. I thought maybe it meant query PDF. Maybe that could be it. Or maybe they just liked the way that the lowercase q and the lowercase p looked together. That That, that is kind of nice. So QPDF, PDF transformation software, that's what it does. And the format of the command is QPDF, that's the, the name of the software, and then some options, the input file, and then the output file. It's pretty simple. So the idea is that this is going to convert one PDF file to another equivalent PDF file, but it has a bunch of options that you might be able to invoke on the way from one to the other. So to get the full Uh, explanation, I guess, uh, dash dash help, qpdf dash dash help, and actually I'm going to do that again, I'm going to pipe it through most, and there we go, so it opens up uh, telling us that the basic options include dash dash password equals the password, dash dash linearize uh, to generate a linearized, that is web optimized file, dash dash copy dash encryption. Copy the encryption parameters from a specified file, dash dash encryption file password equals, then some password. So you can tell that this is gonna gonna work on whatever PDF you throw at it, whether it's password protected or not. You can also set properties in a PDF. Again, from, from one PDF to another, on the way of copying the data from one PDF to the one that you're transforming it into, you can set properties. So for instance, and these are, silly properties to me, personally. Maybe you'll have a use for them. I do not. But there are things like dash dash print, and then you can tell it yes or no, wire in, and that will allow printing of the PDF. Dash dash modify equals yes or no. Allow document modification. Dash dash extract. Allow text and graphic extraction. Dash dash annotate. Allow comments and form fill-in and signing. So you're sort of like unlocking these stupid features that are that are just... Arbitrary. Well, not arbitrary, but there are those annoying, quote-unquote, features of a software package where the minute someone throws it in front of you, the only thing you can think of is, how do I destroy this? How do I get rid of it? How do, how do I get around this? That's kind of how I feel about most PDFs in general, much less the PDFs that that, that block you from doing something that obviously you should be able to now I understand there are different requirements for different uh, tasks different jobs and sometimes you do need PDFs that I, I guess that people can't print I, I don't know why you would need that because i I would imagine you having a PDF you know, if you gave me a PDF that I couldn't print and I found out that it wasn't being that I couldn't print it I would immediately just if nothing else, I would take screenshots of each page and then print each page just to have said that, that I've done it. That's just, you know, that's just, that's how, that's what I think about that kind of technology. Now, I understand, though, that there's probably, there's probably a need for this, or, or else it wouldn't exist, I guess. I don't, I don't know that I agree with it either way, but I understand that, that my use case and my personal uh, beliefs over digital information isn't it doesn't apply to everything so if you need those features if you need to act- activate or deactivate those features then qpdf may be able to help you so there are a lot of different options for that sort of thing which again i don't have a whole lot of interest in and so i'm not going to go over like every single you know the the the, the fine grain controls that you have over over how you allow it to be printed whether it's full or only low resolution and and so on so these are just these are these are switches that you're flipping in the PDF data that gets written out into whatever you know output.pdf that you're generating by passing it through QPDF or by processing it with P- QPDF. You can also allow certain pages to be selected from, from one or more PDF if you're constructing, um, uh, you know, if you're sort of combining PDFs. And this, this could be useful. I don't use this for that task, but mostly because I didn't know this existed until I was looking at the next couple of applications that I had to cover, you know, within two weeks. And so I discovered this one. And this is kind of nice. So let's say we've got, I've got a, um, got a couple of PDFs here that I should be able to, to do this on. So if I do QPDF, and the syntax is a little bit weird, and I'm gonna, I, I, will, I will readily admit, admit that. I do not love the syntax, and that, that'll probably keep me from using this in real life, to be honest. So, apparently, arbitrarily, I need to give it a file name. I don't exactly know why, because I'm going to give it the same file name in a minute to define which page I want. So anyway, I'm going to go, let's do PowerTop, because that's the a PDF that I have. And I know that was something like 10 pages. So then I'm going to do... So qpdf, power top underscore users underscore guide dot pdf, dash dash pages, and I'll do one, now let's do three, now let's do one, comma, and then we'll do like four to five, four dash five. So that's defining the page. I, I want the, the one, page one, that'll be the cover, and then just randomly four to five, I'll, I'll also take those those pages. Now I need to tell it another pdf. So here is a, uh, here's a stats.pdf. So I'll grab that. I don't know how many pages that is, so I'm just going to grab page one from that. And then dash dash blah dot pdf. And that didn't work, probably because of that comma. It should have worked, so instead I'm just going to take one to five. Oh no, I know why, because I forgot to give it the, 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 the name of the... The name of the PDF. So the full command: qpdf powertop.pdf dash dash pages powertop.pdf one comma four to five and then stats.pdf one dash dash blah.pdf. So in other words, for some reason you have to give qpdf an input file name. Not, not all of the input file names, just one of the input files that you want to deal with, you give it that, or else this will error out. And then you do dash dash pages, which is the option to tell it, hey, I'm telling you a page range now. So then you give it an input file again, one that you want to select pages from. So in this case, that's powertop again, .pdf, and then the pages that you want to extract, so in, in, in this example, I'm doing one and then four, and then five. And then you give it the next PDF that you want it to extract pages from. So in this example, stats.pdf. And I only, I can only, I I wouldn't swear to more than one page being in that PDF, so we'll just extract page one from that. And then you have to tell it Okay, that's that's it. Stop, and you do the dash dash trick to sort of like terminate options, and then you give it the output file name. So I've just done that, and now I'm gonna open up blah.pdf in XPDF, and it looks like yes, I've got I've got a four-page document, and the first one is the power top cover page. That's obvious to see. Four is page four from that manual. Five is page five from that manual, and then the the final one is this stats document that I happened to have in in this demo. Directory, so it, it worked it, as designed. Um, this previously, the only way I knew to do that work was with a PDFTK. That's PDF Toolkit, which honestly has since kind of, for me, been displaced by PDFTK-Java, which is well worth looking at. It not include. It's neither of those are included, I don't think, in Slackware. I used to use PDFTK. Well, I, I use PDFTK all the time. I used to use it all the time uh, on all systems, and then on Fedora, something broke between PDFTK and I've, I think it must have been a lib poplar or something like that, and I could not get PDFTK to install on Fedora, but someone has re-implemented the whole thing in in Java, and so now it just works everywhere again, so it's, it's really great. So check that out if you do a lot of uh, slicing and dicing of PDFs. But QPDF apparently does it as well. Like I say... That syntax is really weird, and I'm not hundred percent sure that I'll remember it. But then again, I don't know. It is, you know, once you once you figure it out, it's not that bad. So um, that's cutting up a PDF with qpdf, and there are other options too. It'll do the it'll do fancy things like collate qpdf dash dash collate odd.pdf dash dash pages odd.pdf even.pdf dash dash all.pdf and then you've got all of your pages collated between the odds and the even. And once again, that, that syntax of like, hey, I'm going to randomly throw a file name at an option, and then I'm going to pass another option that requires that same that same file name, I mean, it really does not make this what I would call intuitive. In fact, I would, I would even go so far as to say possibly that it's counterintuitive. I'm sure there's a very good reason that, for it, though. Like, in in terms of, like, hey, we had to do it this way because we're using this programming language and it makes sense for what we're doing. And if we if we require a file name here and then that same file name there, then we don't have to worry about whether an option is sometimes a Boolean and then sometimes not. It's just really, it's a lot easier to parse that way, so just deal with it. I'm fine with that. I think it's really cool that, P, that QPDF just has been sitting on my computer for I don't know how long and I just never really uh, uh, really, really noticed it. And so yeah, it's a useful little toolkit, but I mean this, I don't know what, I, what I'm about to tell you is gonna has blown my mind and it's probably gonna blow your mind it's kind of hilarious but um, this is, I mean if you need proof, I can let me know, and I'll I'll sit down with you and and show you that this actually works. But here's this QPDF thing, and I cannot swear that this is going to work for everything. It's just something random that I discovered. So I don't generally have PDFs that are password protected. That's not really a world that I have to deal with uh, on a normal, on a regular basis. Most of the PDFs that I do get in real life on a day-to-day basis, well, it wouldn't be day-to-day, but, you know, on a weekly basis, would be um, related to role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, that sort of thing. That market, the digital market for those, is, is just steeped in PDF format. And that's largely, I think, because a lot of their actual targets are books, actual physical Books that you buy from a store and put on your bookshelf, um, and since PDF is uh, it has grown from PostScript, which is the language of printers, uh, the graphical language of printers, uh, it just it, that's what proofs are done in. When you after you're lay, after you're done with the layout of a book, you send it to your printer as a PDF, and they print it from that PDF. So it's pretty trivial then to take that book layout and just leave it as a PDF and sell the PDF online. And that's what a lot of people do. So a lot of times when you're getting, if you get into that hobby and you're, you're doing it digitally, which a lot of, a lot of people are doing now, you'll end up with PDFs, more PDFs than you want. And sometimes some of those PDFs are password protected. I understand why they do that because I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, I understand, I, I assume that it's got something to do with protecting, you know, ensuring that they get income for the product that they've released. And I, I understand that, and that goes back to what I was saying about those funky little switches in the P, the, the PDF format that QPDF enables. I, I understand that there's a, a place for that, but If I've purchased the PDF, sometimes there's something in there that I want to, for instance, print out. And, I mean, all the PDFs that I've bought, as far as I know, will let me print out, uh, print print a page out. But, uh, in some cases, what I really want to do is take a map, uh, or or an asset, without getting into too many details about tabletop (laughs) gaming uh, things, uh, I'll I'll take a page... And I want to like cut it out, like cut out the part, just the part that I want to print. I don't want all the text around it or the fancy backgrounds that they would have had, you know, if you bought the, the physical media, it would have all the stuff in the background. I don't want that. I specifically just want this part because I want to save on ink or whatever. And what the password protection often does is it blocks me from being able to do that. It, it doesn't let me then import just page five where the map is into Inkscape so I can mask out all the junk around it, or, or maybe I want to put numbers on the map and um, so that I can keep track of stuff, you know, whatever. It doesn't let me do that. So that's that's been a problem, uh, and in order to get around that, you basically have to crack the PDF. So, funny story, and again, I've only tested this on a couple of PDFs, but so far it has worked, and the, the thing that has worked is if I go to QPDF and I feed it qpdf space dash dash decrypt, I mean this seems too easy already, right? and then path to the encrypted PDF that I want to remove encryption from and then output.pdf, it just runs without complaint, which I thought at the time, I thought, well that's too good to be true That, that cannot possibly have worked. It must have done something and failed to tell me that it did the thing. Uh, nope. xpdf output.pdf. There's the PDF in all of its glory just as I left it. Except, presumably, without any of the encryption. Can this be possible? Well, let's look. Let's test it out. I happen to know that uh, pdf tk would not allow me to split up an encrypted PDF. So let's pretend, again, that the map that I want to print is on page 5. So I'll do PDFTK output.pdf cat five I guess that was a weird choice actually page 5 cat 5 uh, anyway cat 5 and then we'll do output uh, and we'll just do we'll call it map.pdf and it did it now if I do that same thing on on the original encrypted PDF just t- to test it here original PDF cat5 output map.pdf it gives me an error it says errors encountered no output created owner password required but not given or incorrect. So it definitely just stripped the encryption out of the PDF without the password. That I mean that this can't work for every PDF, right? Like that cannot be possible. But for my purposes, this exactly this does exactly what I need it to do. All I need now is a QPDF command to detect encryption so that I can loop over my entire folder of purchased RPG PDFs and strip out all encryption so that I don't have to do this like every time I encounter it that would be brilliant and it's it's just sitting here on my computer and it has been all this time so I don't know if that's a a known feature I don't know if that's a feature that is intended but boy is it nice and now I can take that map into inkscape I can mask out all the the junk around it and then print it on my printer and not use up half as much ink as I would have had to do otherwise. It's brilliant. So that is QPDF. Try it out if you need to remove encryption from PDFs, apparently. Or also just slice and dice. That That's always useful as well. Those, those two things make that application, honestly, those two things make the price of Slackware completely worth it for me. Being able to cut up PDFs and decrypt them, that makes the, what did I spend on Slackware? 50 bucks? Whatever it costs for Slackware? That makes it totally worth it that just that program alone for as much as i do it you know like every weekend when i ru- when i play my game on sunday i'm i'm doing exactly this i'm i'm well, i'm cutting up a pdf for for quick re- you know to, to just slim down what i what i actually need for that gaming session so i'm not flipping through you know 100 pages or something i just want the that one chapter so that i i don't have to as much as to deal with or or i'm printing out a map for reference or something like that QPDF has made Slackware 100% worth the 49 bucks that I paid for it, or whatever I paid for it. Okay, next up, let's talk about Radeon Tool. Radeon Tool is a configuration application for ATI, as it was, as it used to be called, but I guess now it's probably AMD um, for a- AMD cards, and it. Has about uh, nine options. There's debug. There's skip uh, one, like skip equals, and then some integer, and and that would say, okay, well, don't use this Radeon card. Use the next one or you could do skip two and then you'd skip the first two and so on. DAC on or off, that's power down the external video outputs. Light on or off, power down the backlight. Stretch on, off, vertical, horizontal, so that's stretching for uh, resolution mismatch on your on your display. I don't know that I ever fully understood how sort of graphics got onto the screen for a very very long time until I started building my own computers. That was the thing that really made it like really made it all come together. Because if you're just a, a person with a laptop or a, a, a tower that you built that you uh, bought off the shelf of a store, then sort of all you see, you see the computer, and then you look for the video outputs, and all you know is that if you attach this cable to that to that port, then magic happens. Something pops up onto your screen, and if it doesn't look good enough, then you understand that. Well, first you you think, okay, well, I just need to go to settings and adjust the resolution or something. And then if that doesn't work, or if the you know the maximum resolution is like 1024 by 720 768, then you 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 realize, oh, okay, I need to install a driver. And so then you install a driver, and then somehow more magic happens, and then the the image is produced. And it wasn't until I started building my own computer that I kind of realized how it was all happening. On towers, which I think is probably the best way to kind of comprehend it, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, that motherboard part, the the big circuit board that you put into the tower, there's a little chip on that, and a lot of times it's by either AMD or Intel. Sometimes it's by some other manufacturer. It doesn't have to be one of those. It could be, um... What are some of the others? It was the one that I was thinking of, VIA or something like that. But yeah, so they exist. There's a little chip on there. And out of that chip, or, you know, attached to that chip eventually, there's a, uh, a video output port. And if you plug a cable into that output port, then it sends a digital signal to activate pixels on your display. And that's working. The thing about those little chips is that they're rather limited in how much they can process. And so they're designed, I mean, by design, they are limited, because people know that if they make them very, very capable, very powerful, then, well, the chip, you know, probably needs to be bigger, or it needs more memory, or it needs something to take the heat away from it, because now you're, you're crunching lots and lots of numbers and sending a lot of electricity through there, and the heat starts to build up, and so on. So those, those built-in chips if there is a built-in chip. They, they tend to be designed to be relatively low-powered. There's not a whole lot of data rushing through there. It's, it's, it's sort of... It's designed to be... Kind of a basic output. And and if that's all you need, like all you need the computer to do is like maybe give you a basic graphical interface, if that, then that's that's often all you'll all you need. And and then that's great because now you all you've done is you've paid for a motherboard and you haven't had to go spend the extra money on a graphics card. If you do go out and buy a separate card, then you've got this card, you've got a graphics chip on that card that maybe is a little bit more than what was set into the motherboard. Maybe it's a little bit more powerful, maybe. Maybe not. I mean, if it's a 30 buck card, then it's probably basically the same thing. It's just on a separate card, um, and same chip, different card. So you, you slot that in there, and now you've got a different output in the back of your computer. Now, the cool thing is, if you have two monitor outputs in the back of your computer, that, that doesn't mean that they're redundant. You can actually potentially put a cable into each of those outputs and put those cables into two separate monitors, and now suddenly you have two monitors showing you a feed of of your computer. And, you're, and Linux is smart enough, and, and most operating systems now are, smart enough to recognize that those are two cables attached to the same computer Therefore, you know you, it's it's basically getting the same kind of set of information, and then it's up to the graphic layer of your computer. In this, in, in Slackware's case, that's x11 or Zorg or X um, or x 86 If you go far that far enough back, um, then you that it's up to that graphical layer on modern linux it would be wayland or or more modern linux i mean slackware 14.2 is modern linux but something very cutting edge it would be wayland it's up to that graphics layer to to recognize that okay these two signals are being sent you know there's two there's two graphical outputs so i'm going to send one desktop to one of them and another desktop to another and and those will be two unique spaces Workspaces for the, for my user, and you can usually configure that in in one of you know several different ways. Sometimes they are distinct desktops. Sometimes they're just one big long desktop that sort of spans both windows, both both monitor windows, as it were. It just it depends on how you and your graphical uh, com, your your gra- graphic layer kind of interact and set things. So to get even fancier, now you could buy a really powerful graphics card and add it to your computer and have yet another output or maybe that would be your primary output that's generally what I do I get a really nice graphics card and I have one monitor cuz for some reason I don't know I just very used to one monitor and not used to lots of monitors lots of monitors are nice I will admit that but um they do take up a lot of room so yeah you can do that you have lots of monitors where you can have one card and just use that as your primary card, and sometimes a card has multiple outputs, so you you've got that option. Um, now those the bigger cards, they usually have a, a bigger chip on them, a more powerful chip, and it usually generates heat, and so you'll see graphic cards with like fans on them, like fans just for the graphic part, and you'll you'll definitely see that. On you know a gaming computer or something like that, because the the c p u of your computer might be generating a considerable amount of heat, but boy, those graphic cards they they they're like a whole other computer on on a card i mean they really are they're they're really really powerful um Computational devices. Uh, they just happen to have as their primary output, they're their outputting graphical data. And the driver that you may or may not need to install for a graphics card or a graphics chip is simply a way for the Linux kernel to talk to that graphics chip. Because most graphic chips have, well, I think all graphic chips now have as a built in sort of lowest denominator format something called VESA. I'm assuming it's pronounced Visa. I've I've never actually heard it pronounced. Uh, and this is different from the Visa mounting spec for like monitors and televisions and so on. This is a driver, the Visa Vesa Visa driver. Uh, and this is distributed. Uh, the, the Visa driver Vesa driver is distributed by X by X11, the the free desktop folks. It is a generic Video uh, driver for basically all cards. I guess maybe not all of them, but there's a standard. you know, set of information that a graphics card is going to output, and this driver can tap into that and interpret it and display it on your screen. The downside to that driver, that magical driver, is that it may only have, it may only be bringing in an 800 by 600 resolution display, because anything more powerful than that, then you need to know more details about what exactly that card is feeding out, is outputting. But for the VESA core uh, there's a standard output and this driver that ships if you've installed X then you've installed this driver and that just the, the benefit there is that when you plug in a monitor to Linux or like you plug in a a display into your Linux box you get a display you get a picture it might not be pretty it might be the, the resolution may be comically low but you do get an, Im- an an image and that's important for for lots of different reasons i mean a lot of tools on Linux are just easier to sort of interface with over over a graphical interface. I mean, not necessarily. You can usually use them without, hopefully you can, um, but some of the low-level, or the, yeah, I guess low-level things are really just, they're easier if you do it over the graphical display, like getting a network up and running, a network card, rather, up and running. In, in the graphical display, it's like a click of the network manager selecting the the right card and then you're online whereas in a terminal you're gonna have to probably well you'll have to figure it out you know what do you do do you activate network manager and then use nmcli to uh list your connections and well list your devices list your connections and then connect or activate one of those connections uh or or do you just go with iwconfig and config? i mean how, how would you do it it's it's up to you so the, the, the graphical, sort of the, the default, the fallback to graphics is kind of, it's a, it's a feature, it is nice, it's a nice to have. And if you've got that set up, then you've got sort of a, a pretty reliable way of getting an image on a computer. And for a lot of people, that's, that's kind of a source of a lot of sort of comfort. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I mean, really, it, it is comforting to see, okay, I am 70% of the way there. I've got Linux installed and I've got a display. The display is comically... Low res, but that I think I can fix. and you can usually. It's usually involved it usually involves installing a driver that will talk to your graphics card or graphics chip in on a more advanced level. And that's not so hard. Usually, it's usually just looking in your software repository, or in the case of Slackware, you can just go down download the the driver like if it's an nvidia driver or whatever amd's driver is these days you get it from slackbuilds.org. you build your own kernel you install nvidia you know whatever however you want to do it it's something that you can do and fix all of that has almost nothing to do with radeon tool i just wanted to go over that because i think it's useful to get a little bit of context sometimes Radeon tool I've never used. I will probably never use it because honestly I kind of avoid AMD slash ATI graphic cards. I've had bad experiences with them in the past. I have not tried them lately. It's been six years since I've tried one. Maybe they've gotten a lot better. That's the Radeon tool. Okay, let's talk coffee. I am going to go get some coffee, and you really ought to yourself as well because after the coffee break, we're going to go over RPM. That is the RPM Package Manager. (laughs) It stands for, literally, the RPM Package Manager. It is a recursive acronym. Developed by Red Hat as a way, a a means of making the process of installing packages easier on the user. And it would do that by keeping track of what was or was not installed on your system. Now I'm gonna mention here that I don't have a, a very historical background or context for RPM. I, By the time I started using Linux, yum was a thing already, and, and yum abstracted a whole lot of the RPM experience away from the user. So as I understand it, and I'm going to kind of gloss over this pretty quickly in case I'm very, very wrong, and I urge you that if, if... So on Slackware, for instance, and this would have been true for early Linux, as I understand, on Slackware, you can install software, let's say, two different ways. There are more ways, but let's let's sort of say, okay, two common ways of Slackware software installation. You can go grab the source code, you compile it, you turn it into a package, you install the package, and you're done. So it's, what, four four different steps or so? Five, four or five different steps. It depends on, you know, how you're defining steps, but also it depends on if you're using a front-end, because certainly Slack builds does a lot of the work for you, uh, and then if you use a front-end for Slack builds, then you've got something like S-B-O-P-K-G doing all the work for you, practically. So it can be very, very fast, it can be very quick and transparent, or it can be very manual. Either way, not a big deal. But in that process, if you've ever compiled code, then you'll know that when you're compiling code, this code is being translated. This this code that was typed by a human is being translated into machine language. And in order for it to do that correctly, sometimes a code that the compiler has to has to have a library available to it. Some some other code, some code that someone else wrote, and the compiler takes a little bit of code from there, from that library, and 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 combines it to with with the stuff or or puts it into the code that it's compiling over here and so on and that that's what that's what's happening during that that code compile process now if you are trying to compile code for instance that makes great use of lib foo and you don't have lib foo installed on your system specifically the development headers of lib foo usually then the compile will fail. It will it will stop compiling because at some point that compiler is looking out on your system in some predefined directories that generally on Linux, that's where we keep our libraries like slash usr slash lib64 or slash lib64 or slash user slash local slash lib64 or whatever it might be, it's going out there searching that those paths and it's not finding a lib foo and so it can't pull the code that it needs in order to c- sort of complete that puzzle that the source code is that needs lib foo and obviously we do this as as programmers because it is easier to simply reuse code out of lib foo than to reinvent the wheel and and rewrite everything ourselves in our own code that that's one of the ways that code works it's what, it's the reason that it's modular and of course, with open source, you have you have the opportunity to do that a lot because there's so much that you're allowed to pull from. So during the process of, of compiling, the, the compiler will stop if it cannot find the dependencies, the code that it depends on. It will stop, and it will tell you, sometimes in a very clear way and sometimes with just a, a weird-looking error... That takes you a lot of research to understand what it means, but it'll tell you that you don't have libfoo, and and then you know, oh, I, I got to go install libfoo now. And like I say, sometimes that is is literally cannot find libfoo. Oh well, that's easy, so I need to install li- libfoo. And other times it's a little bit more cryptic because it just stops and it says cannot find I don't know IEC underscore FFO dot something, and then you have to you have to think, oh well, what provides whatever I just said, and how do I get it? And then you have to do a little bit of research to figure out why that thing broke when it was trying to do this action, you know, and, and, and it leads you back, ideally, eventually, to the fact that you needed libfoo. And then you go read the readme file that you ignored, and you realize it says right at the top of the top of the document, requires libfoo. Okay, so that's, that's compiling from source code. The other way is to just go go grab a package that someone has already done all of that before you and packaged it up, and put the package online. That's called uh, getting a binary distribution, or, or sometimes just called the software package. And for Slackware, you would you would go to some place that had Slackware binaries on it, like Alien Bob's uh, server. He keeps he he compiles a bunch of stuff like. KDE and VLC and Handbrake and probably a bunch of other stuff that I'm not thinking of, Qubit, Torrent, uh, yeah, lots of stuff, right? He, he puts it on his server, and you can go get it. It's pre-compiled. It is done already. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Now, the thing about Slackware, and this is how it's an example for RPM, the thing about Slackware is that on when you're compiling that source code, you get those warnings, right? Whether you understand them or not, you get warnings that, that it's telling you, hey, you don't have libfoo installed. You need to do that or I won't work. I cannot compile this code. You cannot launch this program until you get libfoo, come back and compile this, and then you can install it and launch it. So the, the, that's sort of dependency checking for you. It's it's not super friendly, I guess, it, it, And and the way I'm describing it, certainly it is a little bit of trial and error, but it does work. Whereas for Slackware, the Binary install. If you point Slack a uh, Slack PKG at a Slack package, you know bar dash one dot zero dot zero dash x eighty six underscore sixty four dot TGZ, tgz or txz or whatever then it'll install that it, it basically it unarchives it and puts all those files in the package on your system in the in the corresponding um, positions and it, it never checks any kinds of de- any kind of dependency so you may install this bar or baz program whatever it is and then you go to launch it and then it errors out it says hey i can't launch and maybe it'll tell you can't find libfoo.so or something like that or maybe it'll just crash and you'll have to once again kind of investigate well why did it why did it tell me it couldn't launch and a couple of different ways you can do that you can do ldd on the binary that you were trying to launch to see what kind of libraries it links out to and so on but the there was no there was nothing stopping you from installing that package even though you didn't have libfoo installed on your system and that's a good thing and it's a bad thing I mean, it's a bad thing because you might think, "Cool, I just installed all the packages I need," but the and and you actually didn't, and, and that could be annoying. But I mean, it it really is quite nice when you're let's say rebuilding a system and you have all the packages in a directory that 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 is you know that that that's the standard package collection for for the systems that you're building. You can just point install pkg at that directory and say all of the t question mark z's in that directory make them be on the system and as long as you know that that's a sane collection that interacts each with each other and and resolves each other's dependencies successfully then by the time they're on the system everything works so rpm is kind of in the middle rpm generally speaking unless you're getting a source rpm is a binary distribution so it's like that tgz or txz or whatever that you've downloaded from Alien Bob or, or Slack only or whatever. You're, you you grab the RPM. You go to install it with RPM. RPM dash dash install and RPM checks to verify whether or not it's sensible for you to install that RPM. And if it is not, then it doesn't. At least by default, it does not allow you to install the package because it it knows that it will not function. It knows that it will not be able to. Successfully run whatever is contained in that RPM uh, until you install the the whatever is missing. So it it's acting a little bit like a source code compile process, even though it's it's binary. And I have to kind of say that that's both good and bad because on one hand it's good because that way you're not fooling yourself. You 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 know exactly what you need to do to make this thing work. So for instance, if I I'm on Slackware, and I pull down an RPM for ARIA 2C, that's a, um, a downloader. It's quite a nice downloader, like wget, but multi-threaded, or, yeah, I guess you could say multi-threaded. I don't know if it's multi-threaded. Is there another term for that? I don't know. Uh, so if I do RPM dash dash install, ARIA 2C dash asterisk RPM, Hit return. Uh, it does not install it for me, and it tells me that it needs libc.so.6 and, and a bunch of other things. So it's it's telling me straight away that this isn't going to work if I install it. Now here's the thing about RPM. RPM is kind of an all-or-nothing system. So RPM, I I can uh, in fact let me let me look at what kind of libc I actually do have in my system. What would that be um glibc or something like that or libc yeah libc.so.6 so if i look in ls, or if I list, slash lib64 slash libc.so, well, if I look in lib64 slash libc asterisk, then I see that the libc version that I am running on this Slackware computer is libc.so.6, and that is exactly what this ARIA 2C RPM just warned me that I did not have. Was it incorrect? Well, not really. It is, it's correct. I do not have the glibc RPM installed on my system. Do I have libc installed? Why, yes, I do. But it's outside the RPM system. I did not install it through RPM. So RPM is more or less useless on Slackware because no matter what you try to install through RPM, it will... It will not recognize what you have on your system as as valid. So, in order, if you if you really wanted to use RPM, I don't even know if this is possible. You really wanted to know uh, to to use it, you would have to install at least like well, I mean probably everything that you see in the a package set of Slackware, you'd have to install, not everything, all those AAA ones in the A package set, you'd have to install with RPM, such that then you could install the RPMs that depend on those obvious things. Like, libc is practically pretty much always going to be an unresolvable but required dependency for whatever you try to do. And I even tested that out, so I have a little script. It's just a bash script. It's called trashy and it is a trash command for your terminal which I highly recommend you should never ever ever use the rm command ever again in your life. Uh, I could I could talk more about that at some point. I'm sure I probably will. And it's a bash script this trashy thing. It's it's not fancy. It is it it's well it is I mean it's a big script. But in terms of what it requires to have on your system, not a whole lot. It's a very basic RPM. It's probably a really nice little RPM to learn how to build RPMs from because it does use all the sort of the really basic features of of RPM and and RPM build. Uh, But anyway, so I I put it onto this... um, I I brought the RPM over onto this Slackware machine, and it is um, an RPM built for Red Hat Linux 8.0. But there is a source package a source r p. m for it as well, and a source r p m is an r p m but it is a an r p. m that hasn't really been built yet i mean it's an an r p m that's been built in the sense it it it's an r p m but if if you wanted to you know the the process of installing the source r p m would require that r p m to to compile the code they're they're kind of nice um but they they are a little bit more they're a little bit more um there there are more steps involved but what they're primarily used for i believe is such that it is so that you can as a user rebuild the the source rpm to create a valid rpm for your system but still retain the benefits of hey i've compiled this myself on my on my system whatever that might be uh and i i've done it i've had to do it a couple of times and i don't for the life of me remember what the impetus was but let's just pretend like i don't know For some reason, you've got libfoo 4.0 on your system, and the package that you want to install was written with libfoo, well, 3 or 5 in mind. Then you might have to rebuild so that it would then build against libfoo 4 instead of 3 or 5. Now, in practice, there's a little bit of wiggle room there because, technically speaking, sometimes... Well, no, RPM wouldn't let you, so I think, yeah, I think you would have to possibly rebuild that. I was going to say sometimes the, the the binary would still actually work on the system depending on the the ABI difference between libfoo four and five or three or whatever but the RPM would stop you because it would see that you don't have libfoo whatever I said installed as an RPM so you could do RPM re, uh, RPM build dash dash rebuild and then the path to the source RPM which I'll do right now so first of all on a system uh, on to to get sort of RPM up and running, you need to run, I think, just RPM, just literally the command RPM. Or maybe it's RPM build. Yeah, it's RPM build. Sorry. sorry. Um, RPM build. And this creates, at least as... As of the version of RPM that we're using on Slackware, running RPM build creates what's called the RPM tree, or the RPM build tree, whatever. And that is a directory simply called RPM build, and it's located in your home directory. So now that I've run RPM build, I have a directory called RPM build. So I'll go into RPM build. And I'll look around, and you'd think it would be an empty directory, but it's not. It's a whole whole system in here. So there's a folder called build, build root, RPMs, sources, specs, and SRPMs. Build is the place where things get built to. Uh, they get copied out of build eventually, but that's kind of the uh, the working directory to construct the RPM. Let me see if I'm getting this right. And then build root is the place where things go to be compiled i think i could be getting this a little bit wrong so don't go quote me but yeah build and build root one of those two i think it's build root you go to to sort of find out what broke you know you go there for your half built project essentially that's um i I know that i've been to build root for that a a number of times okay so then there's rpms well those are the the completed rpms and in there there's going to be a Potentially a noarch directory, and then whatever architecture you're 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 on right now, like a x86 underscore 64. Noarch being things that are architecture independent and are marked as such, and then the the architecture dependent ones are obviously labeled. There's sources. That's where the source code for that that is required for the RPM to 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 build. Uh, that's where the source code goes. So if you're building a package for uh, libfoo, then you'd put the libfoo source code in sources, and then you would build your, your little build script. And in Slackware, we would call that a, a Slack build script. But for this, this is an RPM build script, and they call it a spec file, S-P-E-C, spec file. Spec files go into specs. That's the, That's the fifth one, two, three, four, five, yeah, the fifth directory over here. And then finally there's srpms, and that's where source rpms go. So if you've got an, a, a source rpm, or if you're using one of the rpm tools to grab source rpms, then you can put them in SR, srpms and, and rebuild them from there. So a lot of this is kind of like self, it, it maintains itself mostly. I you, you don't You don't tend to go into these directories all that often. Well, I mean, into rpms you probably go frequently cuz that's where your final your finished product is but everything else it's kind of it kind of maintains itself to be honest so now that we've got rpm build in theory we could go into let's say our srpms and we could do, do a wget or or a there used to be a un on some systems, there are some really handy. I don't think there is here. Yeah, on RHEL and Fedora these days, there's a tool chain called RPM dev, uh, and I think Spec tools, uh, and both of those are really useful because they have commands that will just really quickly grab things from here and there. But anyway, so we're just going to do a um wget. Uh, no, we're going to do a s- secure copy because I actually have it on my home server. So I'm going to secure copy this trashy RPM, but the source one. So asterisk s- src asterisk RPM and copy it to this directory. And so now I've got a source directory in my SRPMs folder. And now I can do an RPM build dash dash rebuild, and then I'll give it the path to SRPMs trashy source and then hit return. And so now it's it's taking this little source rpm and it's exploding it. I think I think it puts the I'll verify, but I'm I'm pretty sure that it puts the sources in the sources directory. Yes it does and the spec file in the spec directory. So that's kind of exploded the rpm. It hasn't installed the rpm. It's just it's taken it apart. It's decoupled it from being an RPM package, and it's taken the source code and put it into a sane location. It's taken the spec file, put it into a nice place. And then all that while, because I used RPM-rebuild, it's also it, it's using the assets that it's just put into those directories. And once it is finished, and it's not going to finish. Okay, so Trashy um, defines in the spec file. So I'll look in the spec file here, Trashy.spec. Trashy uh, defines that it requires bash to run, bash or zsh or tcsh in order to run. So again, because RPM wants to see those RPMs installed, we, we need to remove that requirement. And this is, like I say, this is a really simple RPM. So you can imagine something with more than just one, one requirement. So I'm gonna strike that line all together from my, my spec file, and then do an RPM rebuild, again, or RPM build dash dash rebuild. Do that, let that go. Okay, so I've just um, finished that, and it has built successfully. So I'm finding it in RPMs slash noarch slash trashy dash two five one noarch RPM. So in theory now, I should be able to do an RPM dash dash install, and I am doing that with sudo. Uh, no Arch Trashy RPM. And unfortunately, it still gives me failures. It says error failed dependencies slash bin slash sh is needed by Trashy, and slash usr slash bin slash env is needed by Trashy. So it doesn't see, even for a scripted uh, scripted language, that doesn't require really anything. Nothing is defined as a requirement in the spec file. It still, it, it sees that as being, as, as missing requirements. Even though, I mean, I can do an ls on bin sh, and it is there. I can do an ls or a file on user bin env, and it is there, if I spell it correctly. So it's not missing, it's just that the RPM that would contain those elements are not found on the system by RPM. Okay, but looking at the RPM command, you see that there is a dash dash force option, so maybe we could try that. RPM dash dash install dash dash force RPMs no arch trashy asterisk RPM. No, still not gonna do it. Okay, well, well, we'll turn to the man page then. Man RPM. And we'll look around for uh, dependencies. And you search around for a little while, and you eventually find that there is an option also uh, that might be relevant called no-depths. Forces RPM to skip dependency checking when installing, uh, I think, or removing packages. So let's give that a go. RPM dash dash install dash dash no-depths. RPMs, no-arch, trashy, asterisk, RPM and it looks like it has installed that package. We can verify it with file slash usr slash bin slash trashy, and it says, yeah, that, that exists. It is, a, it is a shell script, uh, ASCII text executable, and we can test it out too. We can do touch um, foobar, and then we can do trash foobar, and then we do trash dash dash list, and there it is, foobar. And we can do trash dash dash empty, trash list, and, yeah, it's empty. So, there you go. It actually functions. It actually does work. So, the the reality of the situation, now that we've gone through the whole process, is that the RPM command on Slackware has limited use, at least the way that it would be traditionally utilized, I think. Uh, and and that, that is that you could, in theory... Use it to install RPMs, absolutely, but only if you tell it, if, if you force it to ignore what it what it was designed to do. Uh, or I, Yeah, I think the impetus for its design was the dependency resolution feature, and so if you turn that feature off and just use it essentially as an unarchiving and installation tool, then yes, you could use that, and that is really good to know about actually because because that that now you know that RPMs are in a way potentially available to you on Slackware now it gets even better because there are a bunch of tools designed by Patrick Volkerding to make slack to, to make RPMs even easier than that to use on Slackware and those are RPM and then the number 2 RPM2 tgz RPM2 TBZ, RPM2TXZ. And those are fantastic little applications. I use them very often. And what that does is it extracts an RPM and then turns it into a Slackware package. Such that when you install it, it is then, you know, it is the, the files and everything that gets recorded in your standard slash var slash log slash packages location. Because right now, if I were to look in slash var slash log slash packages, for trashy, no, it is not there. So as far as Slackware knows, trashy is not installed. As far as RPM knows, trashy is the only thing installed. My install of Linux only features a shell script. That's, that's all that's running this system. It's amazing. Okay, so um, we, can, we can kind of verify some things. We can look at, for instance, the database of, of RPM. So this is the equivalent of... I don't think this is a separate package. Uh, so actually, I guess I should do a, an ls really quick on var log packages to see what I'm supposed to be covering. Yeah, rpmdb is part of of, of this thing. So that's, that's good. So rpmdb is the database that rpm uses to keep track of all your packages or that that all the are the all rpms that you have installed on your system and the way that you can look at that if you really want it's not quite as beautiful as var log packages but you can do rpmdb dash dash export db maybe pipe it through less or most rather and that shows you this um binary database with a very nice translation over here on the right in the right column um for the first screen full, it doesn't look all that great but eventually you'll see actual text that you recognize so trashy 2.51 a sane rm intermediary for the posix shell blah 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 and it just keeps going and going and going so it it is telling you and and it tells you it does you, you see uh the list of packages so it says trashy 8 gz trashy 2.5 readme Md trashy.info. so it sees everything, you know, and and you can you can see it, you can see all the things that it recorded. It's just not, uh, it it isn't plain text like varlog packages is, which is a little bit harder to to parse for sure. And there may be commands in rpmdb that allow you to sort of pull out. Well, I guess there is. I mean, there's rpm. So if we do okay, rpm dash q L. I think that's uh I guess I should actually look these look these up so that we know what the heck they stand for. So I'll do an rpm dash dash help and uh the dash q is for query and the dash l is for list. I did know both of those actually, but I didn't want to get it wrong. So rpm dash dash query, dash dash list return nope uh, trashy return and now it's telling it, it it has found the entry for trashy for the package trashy and it lists all of the files that we did install user bin trashy user man man eight trashy eight gz and so on all what one two three four five six seven seven files so if you're very clever, uh you could take you could take that output and pipe it to I don't know like a remove or a move or something like that or a trash um and 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 get rid of the files that got installed on your system just by listing what the rpm put onto your system in the first place. So it's not it, it isn't it's it's not unmanageable. This is something that you can work with. Uh, RPM dash dash query dash dash all for Trashy, that shows us the packages themselves. Now again, as far as RPM knows, I only have one RPM installed on my entire system and it is called Trashy. So I'm getting like one response back on my query through all packages. But if I had five packages packages installed, and then I did query all uh, trashy, I'd, I'd still only get one response, but then if I did something, I don't know, something uh, something a little bit more or less, maybe tr, then I would get trashy, probably, and then I would get maybe tr, something like that, maybe. Actually, I haven't, you know what, I don't, I don't know about that. Point being, if you want to find one package, you can do a dash dash query dash dash all to search through all packages, and then if you want to get a listing of the files contained in that package, you do a dash dash query dash dash list, and that that shows you everything within that that package. And there's other stuff too. There's, um, what is it? Uh, Is it info or... uh, nope. Show? Am I thinking of DNF? I might be thinking of DNF. Anyway, there's other things you can do with RPM uh, in terms of parsing that database. And if you were to use it frequently, then you could... You could learn those and and look at them. I don't use it all that much because, again, DNF exists, and most of what RPM can do, DNF provides a front end for anyway. I have run Slack package on a system that had a sort of a database-driven package manager on it before. It was... I mean, it worked. It actually worked, because Slack package doesn't, you know, it actually looks at the system for what's available, whereas the database does the opposite. Ignores the system and looks at its own database. So running Slack package on a Debian system is totally possible. I, I, I spent at least a year, possibly more, running a Debian system on a very, very old iBook, and because that's all that that iBook would run was Debian, and because I don't particularly care for apt, I decided to just port Slack package over to it, and it worked fine. I was quite happy with it. Um, In retrospect, maybe I would have just done package source from NetBSD. Maybe that would have been a more natural fit, but I don't think I really... I I didn't feel very comfortable with package source at the time. I just decided Slack package, I know. I'll just do that, and it worked. It worked quite well. Doing the reverse, though, is a little bit tough, and because Patrick Vultriding provides RPM to, uh, to TGZ, I don't feel like there's probably a huge advantage to using the RPM interface directly. The one advantage to it, I guess, is uh, would be these um, the, the database functions. If, if for whatever reason you thought that was a superior method of tracking things, maybe that would be useful. And If you had a whole bunch of interconnected packages, maybe for some reason that would be useful to you. I I can't think of what that reason would be, um, but m- maybe I don't know. Maybe that would be something that you would you would find useful because I mean that is the nice thing about RPM is is the database driven aspect of it, meaning that you can query RPM for something that is required by another thing or something that obsoletes another or conflicts with something else, or uh, provides a specific library, that sort of thing. So there are some nice kind of um, queries that you can make of RPM and get answers back that might be a a different process with Slack package, or, or may not even exist with Slack package. I mean, once it's installed on your system, you really don't have access necessarily to what it required or what it provides. Well, it does... You have a very good list of what it provides. So I guess of what it would uh, of what it required to get onto your system in the first place, I guess would be the the one thing that you you kind of lose with Slack package. I mean, if you've got your build script around, uh, or certainly a, a slackbuild.org file structure, uh, then you have a info file that lists it. If it's an Alien Bob script, it's probably listed somewhere in the script. So yeah, there there are lots of different ways, but maybe that would be a problem. Maybe there are too many different ways. So anyway, RPM it is a system to manage packages. It's not the system that Slackware uses, but Slackware uses or, or, or enables you to use RPMs through both the RPM system, the RPM build system, and the RPM 2 TGZ script, which technically I'm not supposed to be talking about right now because it's not on this list. It's not in the AP package set. So just focus on RPM, RPM d- d- DB, and RPM build, and so on. Those are the tools surrounding RPM that Slackware provides. Well, I mean, there's some of the tools that it provides. Technically, Slackware provides quite a lot, um, and I'll, I'm going to read them off really quick to see if they're if they're useful to talk about. There's gen diff. There's rpm2archive, rpm2cpio. Now, that's the one that rpm2tgz uses, rpm2cpio, to cpio, because that translates the uh, package into the cpio archive format, which it then uses to grab everything out of. RPM build, we've talked about it. RPM DB, talked about it. RPM graph, let's not worry about it. RPM keys and RPM sign. Oh, and RPM spec. So keys and sign, that has to do with if you're signing the RPM or checking the signatures of the RPM. Uh, it's important, but probably more important if you're packaging and, and actually sending packages out, or if you need to verify the um, the authenticity of a, of a package. Because that's another thing that DNF kind of abstracts away from you, is it, it imports those keys, and and you, you all of the packages that you're downloading and, and installing onto your system are being checked and verified against a known good... Uh, uh, key set, like encryption key for digital signatures. And then there's RPM spec, which is a, a command to, to help you query spec files. And then there's RPM spec, which is a command to help you query spec files. Not that big of a deal. I kind of wanted to go over spec files and how they work, but I'm not going to because I'm kind of running out of time. I don't want this to go on forever because, like I say, RPM has a very limited use case on, on Slackware. It's really only included, as far as I know, because of that, those one or two things that RPM2TGZ wants to use in order to make it super easy for you to convert from RPM to a Slackware package. Okay, so a spec file, it is a script with a bunch of macros in it. And by macros, I mean functions that are defined by someone else that you can then reuse in a script. There's a very specific format to a spec file, there is a whole series of linting commands that you that you can do to make sure that your spec file is valid if you ever show a spec file to someone who who makes rpms for a living they will critique it what what's the um what's the expression like uh two days until sunday or something like that they will critique it non-stop they will tell you everything that's wrong with it this is from experience so great Spec files, very strictly formatted, very significant, because it, def- it, it it defines the metadata, the requirements, the build requirements, the description, and then the build process, and the changelog. This is one thing I really like about a spec file, is that it is everything about the RPM in one file. So an RPM, really, well, there are exceptions, <laughs> but in theory... A spec file is, an RPM, is a spec file and source code. And that's in theory, that's all you need for an RPM. Now, in practice, you see other things thrown into an RPM uh, out of necessity because maybe you need a patch or maybe you need, I don't know, some asset that isn't normally bundled with that source code, like an icon or or some form of documentation that really needs to be bundled, but it, it, it isn't, so on. So a spec file, though... It's got everything sort of about that package all in one place, which I I quite like. And I'm comparing that to, for instance, slackbuilds.org, which splits out a lot of information into like three different files. If you go look at a Slack build from slackbuild.org, there is the Slack build itself, a .info file, which contains sort of like the download location and the maintainer's name and some other information. I'm not entirely sure why that wouldn't be in the in this in the slack build file I, I don't know why they thought that that should be a different thing uh presumably for some kind of you know uh, predictable parsing um arrangement but i don't know yeah so it's not in the it's not in the build file and then there's a slack dash desc which is the description of the package and that's yet another file so spec file everything's all in one, and it is kind of that I think to its detriment, there are a bunch of macros that if you are not if you're familiar with a shell, the, the the bash script or, or how to use a shell, I should say, then you're familiar with how to build a, a slack build. You do in the Slack build exactly what you would do in the terminal, basically. That's all it is. I mean, there are certain nice things that people do in their Slack builds, the, like checking the architecture and and setting the version number with a variable instead of hard-coding it. And, or, well, they hard-code it somewhere, but throughout... You know, they, they have conventions that they do. You'll see conventions in Patrick's uh, Slack build. You'll see conventions in AlienBob's Slack build. You'll see conventions in slackbuilds.org. But generally speaking, it's a valid Slack build if it's a a shell script that builds a package and makes it into a Slack package. Whereas uh, the spec file, you kind of have to learn RPM because there are macros in there that you won't understand the significance of. They'll just be like percent some command percent, or some command, and and you won't know what that means. So there is a learning curve to just drumming up a spec file. But once you've gotten over a very little learning curve, you can do very basic spec files. The more complex the build, of course, the more complex your spec file may end up becoming. But honestly, even for just, like, for trashy because trashy is built around auto tools the the build instructions for it are just they're just the auto tools commands and that's it you're done um well you're not entirely done you still have to list out all the files and stuff like that there's a bunch of sort of bureaucracy involved in a spec file but it's it's relatively simple to do a relatively simple rpm and even if your rpm requires like if your build requires one or two patches or the incorporation of an external source, it's not a whole lot to learn. Now you start straying away from auto tools, and now your build is gonna become a little bit more complex because maybe you're gonna have to make sure that you've got, I don't know, meson or Meson, whatever that, M-E-S-O-N, and Ninja, those, those build tools, or, or maybe it's a Python package and now you have to worry about how that's being done and so on. So it can get complex and I, I guess at that point it's just a question of getting to know the different systems. But in terms of learning how to do a spec file, it, it isn't impossible. It's just, it's learning a new format. It's learning a new way of expressing the same commands that you're doing somewhere else in a different way. And I think that's the frustrating part when I'm learning something. If I know how to do it one way, then the mental effort to convince myself that it is then worth doing a different way, there, there's, that takes a lot because I just think, well, why don't I just not do it as an RPM then? I'll just do it over here, package it up, and then I'll be done. And that's the liberating thing about Slack builds is because more than likely if you're, you're at the point of thinking I want to make a Slack build for something, then quite probably you're familiar with the idea that code can be compiled. And so really you're just you're automating a thing that you're already doing. In the exact same language that you're that you're doing it. That's really, really nice, a big feature of Slack package. And not to be discounted. I'm sure there's a lot of benefits to spec files, but I do wonder if there would be a sort of a market or an audience, I should say, for an RPM format that throws away a lot of those conventions and just says, hey, look, you give me the structure of files as you want it applied to your computer, I will wrap it in an RPM for you. But it just wouldn't work because, you know, all that metadata and stuff has to get recorded somehow, and that's up to you. So that's the RPM command and the RPM structure. It is an interesting way to do things. There are advantages and disadvantages, and on Slackware I don't think it's likely that you're going to use it, but you can hack around it because it is included in on your distribution. You can use the tools that it provides you to look at RPMs, or to disassemble them, or to just get around them and convert them into a Slack package. That's it. That's everything. That's RPM. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Clatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the FreeNode network, usually in channels such as OGGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Clatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu@member.fsf.org. at member.fsf.org. That's clatu@member.fsf, at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, GNU and SlackerMedia.info. I will see you next time.